let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for each person that's here this morning, for all of the things that's going on in their lives, the, the way that you love them, the way that you care for them. We ask that you would meet us in a really profound way this morning. We invite the Holy Spirit here to lead us and guide us into truth. Pray that you would remove distractions. Give me grace and strength in teaching your word. We pray for clarity and application. In Jesus' name, amen. The moment of truth. That's a phrase that we have in our home, and I use it when I'm doing projects, especially electrical or plumbing. If I put in a new light fixture or run some wire or try to fix some plumbing or add this or add that, there always comes this moment, the moment of truth, where you have to turn the water back on. And you turn on that valve and you find out how good you are at plumbing how good you are at sweating those copper pipes. And as you can imagine, I'm not that good at plumbing and electrical. If that was the way that I was providing for my family, it would be very meager to say the least. And so oftentimes in that moment of truth, I've found that I haven't done a very good job. If you've ever sweat copper pipe, it's important to get it the first time because it's much more difficult once water's in there to get it the second time, the fifth time, or the tenth time. The reason why we call this Bible study the moment of truth is because we're going to turn on the water. We're going to turn on the electricity, and we're going to see where the cracks are. We're going to see if the connection has been made. As we've been studying through the book of Hebrews, we have this firm foundation on who Jesus Christ is, that he's greater than the angels, greater than the high priests, greater than the old covenant, greater than the sacrifices. So now, what does that mean in our lives? As we've connected to this grace, how are we going to apply it? And this transition has been described in many different ways, from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from precept to principle, from instruction to application. It's not a departure from God's grace, but it's an application of God's grace. So the first half of chapter 10 continues in this vein of Christ being a better sacrifice, a greater sacrifice. Then as we get towards the second half of the chapter, we'll find this word therefore that shows us how we're to apply these truths. And we're going to cover the first 25 verses this morning. So let's begin our journey in verse 1 of chapter 10. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Just like the tabernacle, the law was a shadow. It pointed to the reality, the substance of Jesus Christ. All of these sacrifices in the Old Testament happening year after year, day after day, could not remove sin, could not perfect those who were bringing the offering. It's going to point to how Jesus Christ is the greater sacrifice and what he accomplishes in our lives. In verse 2, for then would they have not ceased to be offered, for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sin. So if these animal sacrifices could bring to a place of completion, 
could cleanse from the guilt of sin in our conscience, they would no longer need to be offered, but they were offered year after year. Verse three, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. What the sacrifices did do was remind the people of God that they were sinners, that they had fallen short, that there was the need for atonement. Verse four, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. It's important to remember the context of the book of Hebrews, writing to Jewish Christians, Jews, and then they got saved, and their tendency was want to go back to the law. The temple was still in existence, hadn't been destroyed yet. Easy for them to put their focus upon the sacrificial system. And so we're seeing the flaws in the sacrificial system. It can't take away our sin. It can't remove our sin, only cover sin. And then verse five points to how Christ is that superior sacrifice. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you have prepared for me. This is quoting Psalms 40. It's Jesus speaking. The father never desired sacrifice. What he desired was the sacrifice of his son. Each animal sacrifice pointed to the lamb of God. It's profound to think about this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, there's a body that was prepared for me. And we're gonna focus in on the body of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. The word sacrifice, we use it a lot, but it's connected back to the Old Testament. All of these animal sacrifices for sin, and then Jesus was the final sacrifice, the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Father prepared a body for the Son, Mary, the virgin birth, the immaculate conception, Christ is born in Bethlehem, a young baby held for the first time by Mary and by Joseph. Joseph is one of my personal heroes. From the account that we find in the Gospels, it seems that he's the only one that's there with Mary at the birth of Jesus Christ. Here's this little body, the little hands of Jesus, probably a thick head of hair as a Jewish little boy. And that body was prepared by the Father for the purpose of crucifixion, for the purpose of being the ultimate sacrifice so that our sin could be removed. In verse six, in burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus is saying by quoting Psalms 40, I come in the volume of the book. From Genesis to Revelation, There's one main point, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. We don't just learn of Jesus at Matthew 1, verse 1. He's come in the volume of the book. Christ was risen from the dead and he's walking on the road of Emmaus with a couple of his disciples who don't recognize him. And I read to you out of Luke 24, verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. First five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, he goes through them saying, here, points to me, points to me. He goes through all of the prophets, the major, the minor prophets. This is where it points to me. This is where it points to me. I would love to have that message on YouTube and be able to pull that up on a Google search, wouldn't you? Pastors prior were like, man, I would love to have that message on 8-track. Be great to hear it. And it was, wow, we would love to have that on a cassette. Some, some of you are looking at me like, I don't even know what a cassette is. My k- kids the other day were like, what's a cassette? You know, it's like, 
And then it was like, well, we really wish we had that on MP3 and just keeps advancing. But the point is this, man, we would love to have heard that message. We know a few of the highlights, Isaac being offered on Mount Moriah by Abraham, the only begotten son, the promised child. Mount Moriah is the very mountain that Jesus was crucified on. Isaac being sacrificed by Abraham, God ultimately provided a ram in in the thicket, but that pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Joseph's life, as you study Genesis, points to Jesus, the ultimate savior. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Jesus was rejected by his brothers. When his brothers were reunited with Joseph, when did Joseph reveal himself at the second appearing? When does Jesus reveal himself corporately to the nation of Israel at his second coming, his second appearing? That's when they'll acknowledge Jesus Christ as their savior. We go on to Joshua. Joshua leads the children of Israel into the promised land. Jesus, the ultimate Joshua, leads us into the promises of God. The law couldn't bring us in. Moses couldn't bring us in. But Jesus brings us into the promises of God. Ruth represents the church. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He redeemed Ruth and Jesus redeems us. Jonah actually points to Jesus. Yep, the knucklehead Jonah, the rebellious prophet who didn't want to go to Nineveh. Jesus said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, I will be buried in the earth and risen again. Christ's resurrection was much more glorious than Jonah's though. The fish had the urge to regurge and vomited. Jonah up on, on, onto the beach. Some women in our church on Tuesday mornings and Tuesday nights are doing a study Christ throughout the Old Testament. They're going in depth of looking at how Christ has come in the volume of the book. You can do it too. Study the Old Testament and look for Jesus Christ in every page. As he comes, notice he comes to do your will, O God. The reason that Jesus came was to do the will of the Father. We find this in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. For us, this is the Christian life, to not live for our will, but to live for the will of the Father. I was doing some research this week and I pulled up a a pastor, a teacher, and was listening to about five minutes of their message. And this is what I heard. It was directed towards the Lord and saying, God, we give you permission to end this drought. And it made my skin crawl because we don't give God permission. We don't go to God and say, God, I give you permission to do this in my life. That's not the way that it works. We come to the Lord and we say, God, I want your will. I don't want my will. I don't want to be commanding you. I want you to command me. And even inside of the church, collectively, corporately, we get this mixed up. We get our position with the Lord in the wrong order we'll find abundant life. We'll find the life of Christ as we live to do his will and daily take up our cross. Notice what the will of the Father resulted in our lives as we continue to read. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you didn't desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Two times and two verses, God says he doesn't have pleasure in those Old Testament sacrifices. Then why would we ever go back to them? Why would this church, this Hebrew church, go back to animal sacrifice? In verse 9, then he said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. The will of the Father 
Jesus doing the will of the Father took away the first covenant that was based on the law and brought us into the new covenant that's based on the blood of Jesus. By that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That simple phrase stood out to me, by that will. It hit me, by that will. The will of the Father, this was the plan of the Father. Jesus submitting to it, it resulted through the sacrifice of Christ. We have all of this Old Testament sacrifice, and then we have the final sacrifice, once for all, Jesus, the Lamb of God, and the result of his sacrifice, his blood, resulted in our sanctification. There's a couple of two important Bible words. First is justification. What does it mean? To be declared righteous by God. That took place also through the sacrifice of Jesus. It's your position in Christ. If you believe in Christ, you're justified. You're declared righteous by the Father. Also, we're sanctified. Sanctified means we're set apart for a purpose. You practice sanctification every day at your home with your utensils. You set aside that fork, you set aside that spoon, you put it in a drawer, you keep it clean because you eat with those utensils. Now, I hope that you don't get into the kitchen, open up that drawer, pull out a spoon and start cleaning the toilet. It's set apart for a purpose, isn't it? I hope that you don't go grab a fork and start cleaning out the kitty litter and put it right back into the drawer. I could keep going if you'd like me to. (laughs) You get the idea. I'll leave it there. They're sanctified. They're set apart. And the moment that we receive Christ as our Savior, we're set apart. We're, We're sanctified. It's a process that we're continuing to go through till we come to know Christ as our Savior, where he's making us more like him. But please note verse 10. Please underline this. I think it's something that you have faced or you will face in your Christian life. You'll meet somebody who will tell you something like this. It's wonderful that you believe in Christ for salvation and justification, but in order to be sanctified, in order to be set apart, in order to become more like Christ, you need to go under the law. You need to eat kosher. You need to strictly observe the Sabbath day the way that it was in the Old Testament, and they will emphatically claim that sanctification comes through the law. What does verse 10 tell us? Where does sanctification come through? It comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. If the Sabbath day and the kosher diet could provide the adequate level of holiness in our lives, why was it ever replaced? Why was it ever brought to Jesus Christ? Man, if you want to eat kosher out of worship to the Lord or out of a health choice, praise the Lord. Go for it. But your sanctification is going to come through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you want to set aside Saturday as a Sabbath, man, praise the Lord. Go for it. But don't put this tag on it, this legalism on it, that your sanctification is going to come through the law. Your sanctification and your justification comes through the body of Jesus Christ. In verse 11, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Priests are always working in the Old Testament, but there's never the result of the remission of sins. Contrast this with Jesus, but this man, after he offered one sacrifices for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. This man, there's an emphasis on the humanity of Christ, the God-man. When he died... He was the perfect sacrifice, the finished work of Jesus Christ, where he rose from the dead, and it says, as he offered one sacrifice for sin forever, 
All of my sin, past, present, future, is already dealt with at the finished work of Jesus Christ. All of your sin is dealt with forever. It's been paid for forever. All of the sin of all of humanity, it's paid for one sacrifice forever. One thing I've really been enjoying about Hebrews is it's really helped to deepen my understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. Understanding the Old Testament, understanding how deep it is, understanding all that's been accomplished through the finished work of Jesus Christ. For now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Contrast that with the priests of the Old Testament who are always working. Christ is seated. He's at a position of rest. It's not that he's not engaged, but the work is finished. It's completed as he's there, seated at the right hand of the Father. Our greatest problem as humanity is our sin, and it's been dealt with. So Jesus has solved the sin problem. Don't you know he'll be faithful in the situations that you go through in life? Our sin doesn't cause the Lord to go, oh man, (sighs) that group at Rocky Mountain Calvary, they're sure a motley crew. I'm I'm gonna have to come up with a greater sacrifice for them. They really had a bad week. That, that snow really put them in a bad state. I'm gonna I have to come up with something else. No, his sacrifice is more than sufficient. Also with our situations, he's not scratching his head going, I've never seen that one before. Whew, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know if they're gonna make it. No, he's seated at the right hand of God. Verse 13, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Christ is not gonna remain seated at the right hand of the Father forever. At one point, he's gonna stand, he's gonna return, and he's gonna rule and reign. And all of his enemies will be put under his footstool. And this is what we long for. There's a part of us that longs for the redemption of mankind, longs for God to make things right. We see what's taking place in the Middle East with with ISIS and see Christians being martyred and it causes us to cry out, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Lord, set things right and he will. It says, till he comes. He's waiting till he comes and he will rule and reign. There will be no peace on this earth until the Prince of Peace comes. These are all birth pains leading to the coming of Jesus Christ. But be encouraged, even in the midst of the chaos, God's working. There's great reports that are coming out of the Middle East of many people coming to know Christ as their Savior. Why is God waiting? Why isn't he coming? Aren't you ready? You ready for the second coming of Christ? I'm ready. I was ready five years ago. But how many people have come to know Christ in the last five years? Did you know Christ five years ago? How many people have come to know Christ in the last five months? God tells us the reason that he waits is he doesn't want any to perish. God's wanting as many as possible to come into the kingdom, to be his sons and daughters before he pours out his judgment. Verse 14, for by one offering he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We're complete, we're perfected forever through his offering and God's in this process of sanctifying us, of of making us more like his son. It's his agenda for our lives. Verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for he has said before. So this is the testimony of the Spirit as the Spirit spoke through Jeremiah and Jeremiah 31 is quoted. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. It was always God's plan to bring us into the new covenant. 
I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. The new covenant is superior because it's inward instead of outward. God has written his commands upon our hearts. We're motivated from our hearts to live for the Lord. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Old covenant couldn't do this, but the new covenant does. God prophesied it. We now walk in it. Our sins are forgiven. They're removed and he remembers our sin no more. Verse 18, now where there is remission of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So since sin has been removed, there's no need for continual sacrifice. There's no need for there to be animal sacrifice in the temple. There's no need for this group of believers to go back to the Levitical system. We're probably not struggling with going back to animal sacrifice, but we do struggle with wanting to make our own sacrifice for sin, don't we? There's no more sacrifice. When we sin, it's not that we can go to God and say, Lord, I've made things right because I read my Bible every day after that. God, I I made things right with you because I decided to go to church. There's one way for there to be forgiveness, and that's trusting in the finished work of, of Jesus Christ. We can respond to that out of gratitude, but quit trying to sacrifice and accept the sacrifice that Christ has done. It's extremely freeing. Here's the moment of truth. Here's when we turn on the water, turn on the electricity. Verse 19, therefore... When you see this word in scripture, it means that we're looking at the truth that we've now studied. Go back and read those first 10 chapters. And now here's how we reply it. Now here's how we respond to it. Brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. What does the blood of Jesus result in our lives? That we get to enter into the throne room. See, God doesn't just save us to give us a reservation in heaven and say, I'll see you when you get there. He saves us to be in relationship with us. He saves us so that we can come into the holiest of all and we can come boldly. We can come in confidence because of the blood of Jesus, because Christ has gone through the veil at the throne room of God for us to be able to come in. Are we taking access to the throne room of God? Are we taking it to the throne? It's kind of tax season right now and maybe some of you are starting to look for that tax return. Maybe you filed electronically and you're opening up the bank account saying, when is it going to be automatically put back in? Have you ever not cashed in your tax return? You ever not accessed your tax return? Have you ever been like, you know, the government is using this money so efficiently, I'm going to give it back to them. (laughs) No, absolutely not. I have never felt bad about using a tax return. If there's a tax return, it's like, all right, let's let's put it to use. How much more so is what God's provided, the Heavenly Father, to take access to the holiest of holies. Even right now, in the midst of this service, draw near the Lord, go to that place. Oh God, thank you so much for your forgiveness. This is what's on my heart. These are the needs that are going on in my life and, and in my family. That's the application of these truths that have been given to us. I love verse 20. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. The new covenant is alive. It's not just written on stone. It's not just written upon tablets. 
It's alive because Jesus Christ is alive and we get to walk in relationship with him. It's new and it's living. Notice the analogy at the end of verse 20 about the veil and his flesh. The veil was torn, giving us access into the Holy of Holies, and Christ's flesh was torn so that we could have access into the presence of God at the throne room of God. A tremendous parallel. Verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God, you have a high priest. He's your advocate, he's your mediator. He's engaged, he's concerned, he's the sacrifice. He's our high priest over the house of God. We're the house of God. Quickly look at verse 22 through verse 25. You're gonna find the phrase, let us, three times. Go ahead and locate it. Three times, we're gonna have these applications. These are things that God wants us to do. The first is, let us draw near. Let us draw near. God has done all of this for us so that we could be near to him in relationship, to draw near with our hearts. We're created in the image of God. God in himself is a relationship, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't live in isolation. Since we're created in his image, we're relational. We're created for relationship. What is the highest expression of relationship? When are relationships at their best? When are they at their apex? When people are drawing near. Let's take any friendship. When do you feel good about friendship? When there's nearness. There can even be great distance between friends, but then when you take the time to pick up the phone, you do Skype, you do FaceTime, you get an email, you get a text message, there's a nearness. Oh, it was great to spend time with them. When you're close in proximity and you grab some coffee, sit down and watch a Broncos game. Shoot, I've even gone to Joanne's fabric store to spend time with Amber, my wife, and gone, hey, that was a great time. And I don't like sewing. I know that's a surprise to you, but I don't like sewing. But I like spending time with, with, with my wife. So friendship finds its satisfaction when there's nearness. Husbands and wives, When do you feel most connected in your marriages? It's when there's nearness. It's when you're taking time together and you're drawing near together and you have a conversation. You're like, oh, this was was so wonderful. We, We got to talk for a whole hour together and just share our hearts together. When do you not feel so good about your marriage? When there starts to be a drifting that takes place. I can't remember the last time we really talked. I can't remember the last time we really spent time together and shared our hearts with one another. That's why you're married, for that companionship and to share that with with each other. With your children, if you're a parent, there's those moments where the stars just line up. And you have one of those moments with your kids where they just look at you that way and you look at them that way and you're like, oh, you're my son. And they're like, oh, you're my dad. You're my daughter. Oh, you're you're my dad. And in that moment, you're like, I could have 10 kids. This is amazing. There's just a nearness that happens. And then that moment passes and you're like, Lord, thank you that I don't have 10 kids. So thankful. But there's a beauty there that happens inside of those moments. And why is that? Because God is giving us a message that he longs for nearness with us. And for us to go, wow, I'm created to be in fellowship with God. I'm I'm created to be in nearness with God. I'm going to go into the holiest of holies. How do you draw near to God? God gives us amazing promise. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. From your heart, when you reach out to him and worship, 
when we come in together and we sing to the Lord, man, you're drawing near to him. And you get in the word and you read it and respond to it, you're drawing near to him. In prayer, when you pour out your heart before him, you're drawing near. You go for a walk and say, God, I'm gonna be still and know that you're God. I'm gonna listen for your voice. Man, you're drawing near. Let us draw near. Goes on and shows us how, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The blood in the old covenant was sprinkled on the body, the body of the priests, the body of the people, but it couldn't sprinkle the heart. The blood of Jesus, it sprinkles our heart. To where our heart comes to the Lord with a true heart, a genuine heart and full assurance of faith. We don't come to the Lord based on our own performance, our own works, if we've had a good day or a bad day. We come in full assurance of faith through the blood of Jesus. You apply the blood of Jesus to your heart. What keeps you from drawing near to the Lord a lot of times? (coughs) Is it ever something like this? Mm, I've really failed. I don't want to go to the Lord again. I told him I'd never do this again, and I've done it again. Ever lost your temper on the way to church? And you're like, now I gotta go in church. That feels real awesome. You know, I just totally lost it. And <clears throat> now I gotta come in and sing that God is good. I'm just gonna stay in the parking lot today. The enemy loves to do that. But we don't come based on us. We come full assurance of faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, that the blood of Jesus has sprinkled our hearts. The next thing is let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. <clears throat> Think of something in your imagination, in your mind's eye of holding fast. What do you hold fast to? I think of rock climbing. Occasionally we like to rock climb as a family and when you're rock climbing, you hold fast to the rock. You know that you're tied in with a rope but you don't want to test that. Also, the person who's belaying holds fast. They're holding fast to the rope. If, if you belay someone in rock climbing, your job is to never let go of the rock, or the rope, excuse me, or to keep your eye off the person that's climbing. Because the moment that you let go of the rope, they decide to fall, and you're like, oh, sorry about that. Wasn't holding on. So you hold fast. And what God is saying is, I want you to stay connected to, I want you to hold fast to this, the confession of the hope without wavering. What's your confession? that Jesus is God, that he died for your sins, that he rose again, that he's the Lord of your life, and you hold on to that without wavering. Jesus is our hope, and as we hold on to him, we know that he's promised who is faithful. Sometimes our emotions tell us the exact opposite. Our emotions are betraying us, and we have to hold on to who we know Jesus to be, and Jesus is the anchor to our soul. What are some things that he's promised? John 17, verse 12, your name, those you gave me, I have kept. Jesus says that he will keep those that have been given to him. We also know in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. Wonderful promises, hold on to, to your confession. The next thing that we see, it's the third thing, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Let us consider one another. 
as we see who Jesus is, as we begin to walk with him and love him, we're going to naturally have a heart for what God has a heart for, and he has a heart for people. He has a heart for the body of Christ. And a lot of times we say, Jesus, I love you. I want to draw near to you. I want to hang out in the holiest of holies, but I just don't like people. The Christian life would be great if it weren't for people. God's saying, no, that's not how it works. If you love me, then you're going to love your neighbor. And so in this process of transformation and application, we begin to consider one another. We're not just concerned with our own Christian life, but we're concerned with the Christian life of those around us. And when we get together with believers, we don't just have a consumer mindset. We don't just have a me-centered mindset, but we have an others-centered mindset. This is the mind of Christ. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. And I think we fight this. As we gather together as believers, it's very easy to think that it's all about me. So we, we come in, and first, we might get a little bit upset that we can't find a parking spot. And we come in, we finally get into the sanctuary, and we're like, I don't really like this song. This song's pretty miserable, and the volume's too loud, and who let somebody play the violin up there? And man, I'm tired of the electric guitar. And, blah, 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 blah. and we just, we get going on, on that rant and rave. And then we're like, has anybody tasted the coffee around here? I mean, they just don't have very good espresso at Rocky Mountain Calvary. And who decided to put the cafe upstairs? The cafe should be downstairs. I got to walk all the way up there to get a breakfast burrito. I can't, by the way, the reason we did that, it has a really good view. We were like, we, we don't want to waste that, that view. It's a great view of the Pikes Peak. And then, and then you go to children's ministry. And by the time you get to children's ministry, you're like, goodness gracious, the lines are just incredibly too long. And the list just goes on and on and on. And before we know it, guess what? We've lost the mindset of why we gather together with God's people. We don't gather together for God's people for ourselves. That's what this verse is telling us. We gather together to draw near to the Lord and to consider one another. So as we come in, we want to come in with the mindset of how is the person doing next to me? Well, they never talk to me. I've been coming here for seven years and no one ever talks to me. Can you believe that? No one has ever once stopped me and asked me, do you need any prayer? Well, how about this? Try talking to them. Try reaching out to them. Try saying, hey, can I, can I pray for you? And when we come in with this other's mindset, then we see that person that's sitting in the foyer, downcast, and we take an extra 15 minutes. We talk to him and we pray for him. And we walk away going, you know what? I enjoyed worship and I enjoyed the Bible study. But even more than that, I enjoyed considering someone else. I enjoyed hearing about how they're doing and praying for them. And it's not just in our time here on Sunday morning, but then as you're at work and you're working with believers, consider them. As you invite believers into your home, consider them. It's a lifestyle of considering others better than myself, but it's something that we fight because every day my flesh wakes up very active. My selfishness wakes up alive and well and needs to be crucified. As we consider one another, we stir up love and good works. May I ask you this morning, what are you stirring up? You're stirring up something. There's days where I wake up grouchy and I'm not stirring up love and good works in my home. Every single day, we're stirring up something. Are you stirring up trouble this morning? Are you stirring up love and good works? How do you stir up love and good works? By loving people 
and doing acts of love because as you do that, it provokes them to do the same. If you've ever had someone bring you groceries when you were down and out and didn't have money to buy groceries, what happens? Over time, God blesses and you've got a little extra money and you go, you know what? Who can I bring groceries to? Because someone has loved you in, in that way. So by loving and doing good works for others, we stir up love and good works. And we come to verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What I'm about ready to share, I want you to consider two things. And the first is this, is this warning is given after God has very systematically in great detail laid out his love for us. So he gives us this instruction based on love. So first remember that. And then what I'm going to share with you about this is my love for you as a pastor and a brother in Christ. Because I have seen the benefit in my life personally of the body of Christ. And where I'm wanting to get you in the next 10 minutes is for the rest of your life, for the rest of your life, you will commit to the body of Christ no matter what. Because Satan is alive and well, he doesn't take a holiday, he doesn't go on vacation, and he will work overtime to try to separate each and every one of us from the body of Christ. I think it's his, one of his number one objectives. Because once we're isolated from the body of Christ, we become very susceptible to Satan's attack. And if he can't get us to deny Christ, he wants to get us to a place where we're not healthy and fruitful as a Christian. And once we're isolated, it's much more easy for him to do that. So what are some ways that he gets us to give up and disconnect from the body of Christ? I think the first is very subtle. We hardly even notice it. It's just busyness. It's what we really battle. And we get so busy, we go, man, I can't gather together with believers for fellowship. What is fellowship? Fellowship is sharing something in common. This morning we shared Christ in common through singing together. We shared Christ in common through reading the word together. We take communion together. We share Christ in common. And we get busy and the first thing that goes is, man, I don't have time for church. And church isn't just this setting, but church is also having believers in our home and going out to lunch with believers and being connected with believers. We go, man, I don't have time for that. Just take inventory for, for a second. When was the last time you invited some believers into your home just to hang out and talk about the things of Christ? Completely on your own initiative, not through a church program, just because you love believers. Just because you don't want to forsake the fellowshipping of, together. And we go, oh man, it's been a long time. Why? Because we get busy. And before you know it, we've neglected one of the greatest priorities in being around the people of God. The second is one that I think happens over and over again, and it's hurt. You get hurt. If you've gone to church for any length of time and you've really connected to the body of Christ, you know that you're going to get hurt. If you haven't been hurt yet by fellow believers, you will eventually. It's going to happen. And this is why, because we're all sinners. And there's no perfect church. There's no perfect pastor. We're all sinners. So you're going to be sinned against, you're going to sin against others, and one time it's going to cut really, really deep. And it's going to be somebody who's close to you, and you never anticipated being hurt by that individual, but now you're hurt. 
what are you going to do? You're going to get to that crossroads and you're going to make one of the most important decisions of your life. And everything inside of you says, I'm going to pack my bags on the body of Christ. I'm done. I'm signing out. I'm not giving up on Jesus, but I'm not going to church. I'm not being part of the body. I'm not going to serve because it hurts too bad. And Satan's going, yes, I got him right where I want him. So when you get to that place where you're hurt, and maybe this morning you're there, you're like, man, I, I am so hurt by, by the body of Christ. I'm thinking about giving up. I want you to consider a few things. Because this is what hurts my heart, is when someone shares with me that they're leaving RMC, that's always kind of hard. I, it's always kind of difficult. I love you guys. I like you guys. I like you being here. But what breaks my heart even more is not if they're leaving, but if they leave and don't go to church anymore. I just say, you know, I'm giving up on church. And I'll usually ask the question, okay, you're leaving? Well, where are you headed? Where are you going? There's a lot of great churches in town that love the Lord, that are committed to the word. Make sure that you plug into the church of God. So why not? Why not forsake gathering together? (coughs) You know what's kind of funny? Is we were going to cover this last week and we canceled service. <laughs> like we were going to cover 1025 and we forsook the assembling of together. In this verse, it said, Do this all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you see the coming of Jesus Christ approaching? Then we need to be committed to fellowship all the more. I want to give you four reasons why not to forsake gathering together. The first is Christ is in our midst. This is the promise of Christ. In Revelation 2 and 3, he said he's in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. The candlesticks are the church. Jesus has chosen to manifest his presence inside of the people of God. And if you miss out on the body of Christ, you're going to miss out on Jesus. The reason I'm here this morning is because of Jesus. I hope that the reason that you're here this morning is because of Jesus. I hope the reason that you'll never give up on church, not just Rocky Mountain Calvary, but collectively is because of Jesus. And you know his promise that where two or three are gathered, that he's in our midst. The second reason is to be absent from the church encumbers your ability to glorify God. If we say, you know, I've just been hurt too bad. I, I can't gather together with believers. In what other setting... Are you going to get to do what you just did this morning? Where you come together and lift your voice with brothers and sisters in Christ to the throne room of God. And if you pack your bags and you move up, move out, your voice will never be heard again amongst the people of God. And I think that's extremely heartbreaking, don't you? This is the last place Satan wants you to be, is right here glorifying the Lord. So don't forsake the gathering together. The third is there will be a lack of theology if you give up on God's people. Have you ever had this experience? I'll be the first to raise my hand. Is I really thought something was biblically accurate. And then I started to talk to my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ about it. And they're looking at me like, where did you come up with that? Like, that's the weirdest thing you've ever heard. You're whacked out, man. And then they start looking at the verse that I was looking at. And they're like, you got the complete wrong idea from that. 
If you just get in a room by yourself and you study your Bible and you pray, that's wonderful, but you'll probably come out with some things that aren't right that you won't even discover are wrong until you get confronted by other believers. There will be a lack of of theology. Man, we need to study alone, but we also need to study together, corporately. And then the last is that your gifts will be absent. If you give up on the body of Christ and you give up on brothers and sisters in the Lord, is your gifts won't be used. If you're not in a relationship with believers, how do you use the gift of mercy to edify the body? How many gifts of teaching are absent in the body of Christ in Colorado Springs this morning because people have given up on church? How many amazing worship leaders are no longer leading worship because they're disenchanted? How many people that love two-year-olds? Like if you love two-year-olds, the body of Christ needs you. How many people that love toddlers are at home this morning because they've gotten disenchanted? How many people have the gift of giving, but there's no one to give to? There's no believers to give to because they're no longer in relationship with believers. Do you see how heartbreaking this is? I want you to think for just a moment how God has used believers in your life and in the life of your family. I can look back and go, God, I'm so thankful that you've allowed me to be plugged in with the body of Christ from a young child. God has used brothers and sisters in Christ in my life. And I've had times where I've gotten busy and Amber and I are saying, you know, we really don't have time to be involved in this small group. And then life hits the fan and things get difficult and we go, we gotta get back to the small group. We need that fellowship. There's no way that we can do this alone. We need to be together with people. I don't know how my dad did it, but he got it across in my mind and I fully believed it. He never came out and said it out loud, but he made me believe if you don't go to church, you're not living in this home. I never tested him on that fully, but I had it in my mind. If I totally rebelled and wouldn't go to church that he'd say, okay, it's time for you to pack, pack your bags. And most of my childhood, as we were loading up in the station wagon, I was hell on wheels to get to church. I did not want to go. My dad was like, this is a non-negotiable. We're going to church. This is what we do in this family. And then I was 14 and God got a hold of my life. And I'm so thankful that I grew up in a home where my dad said, you know what? This is what we're going to do. We're going to be amongst the people of God. We're going to be in relationship with believers. But I don't want you to hear the wrong tone. This isn't out of legalism. God doesn't abandon you. His love doesn't stop for you. You don't earn forgiveness. You don't become saved by by going to church. This is birthed out of the expression of all, all of God has done for us. Wow, God, you've forgiven me. You're my high priest. God, I want to be with believers. I want to be committed to believers. So here's three applications that we see from the message this morning. The first is draw near to God today. Draw near to him. Enter into the holiest of holies and then hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to it. Hold fast to the hope that you have in Jesus Christ and then finally commit to the body of Christ. If you're disenchanted, if you're hurt, and you feel like giving up, first I want to commend you because you're here this morning. You're here at church even though you're disenchanted, even though you've been hurt. And would you let God heal your heart? And would you recommit to the body of Christ, not just Rocky Mountain Calvary, 
but collectively as a whole and go, man, I know that the church as a whole is flawed, but Jesus loves the church. And then if everything's going great in your relationship with the church, would you hold on to this message and would you commit this morning and say, you know what? I know this one thing that until I go home to be with the Lord, you're going to find me in the house of God. I want to be in the house of God when I'm 90 years old. I want to be in the house of God when I'm 55 years old. I want to be in the house of God. And to say, you know what? It's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than be in the tent of the wicked. And for your family and your friends to know, as long as you've got breath, you're going to be amongst God's people and you'll be blessed for it. Amen? Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your heart. We're we're thankful that these instructions are given out of love and we draw near to you. We thank you that the veil has been torn, that Jesus, you're our high priest. We wanna walk in fellowship with you. We wanna be in nearness with you. We hold fast to our confession. Jesus, you're God. You died for us. You rose again. You're gonna be faithful to your promises. We commit to the body of Christ. We see the benefit of being connected with believers. Would you continue to bless us in relationship? In Jesus' name, amen.